welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Kathleen Kobashi from Virginia Mason talking about complications of pelvic floor reconstruction. My name is Ryan Donahue. I'm the R4 at Virginia Mason. I have Dr. Kathleen Kobashi here, who's the chairman of urology and renal transportation at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle. Um, she's going to be talking to us about complications of pelvic floor reconstruction. Well, thanks so much, everybody. This is super exciting. I want to thank Dr. Hampson, and I want to thank Michelle Lifto and Kirsty Cruz for like all the hard work and collaboration. Um, this is really exciting. I wish the circumstances were different, but I think this may be one of the silver linings in all of this craziness that we're living through. So um, I wanted to shake it up a little bit and change up the format just a little bit, try to make it as interactive as possible. Um, I know that's not easy remotely, but just to make you think rather than giving you a lecture. Um, some of it's going to be a little bit of review of things, but I want to I put it in sort of a case based um, discussion so you can be thinking about the next steps. And, and I have to confess also, when I got in to sign, sign up for all this, all the guidelines-based stuff was already taken by my colleagues. So um, it made me get a little bit more imaginative. So hopefully this kind of gets your blood uh, moving a little bit and uh, keeps it a little more interesting. So first of all, let's see if I can get my, uh oh, I'm not being able to advance. Technical difficulty number one. There we go. Okay, these are my disclosures um, here in the corner. And um, first I wanted to just do, you know, test the system here, the interactive system. Can you just answer this question, please? Is there a way to do that, Michelle? Yeah, there you go, perfect. This will give us a little bit of an idea of who's here and who's going to challenge me and tell me if I say something wrong. <laughs> Does this change on its own? I'm going to click. Oh, hmm. Oh, good. Okay. So that gives us a little, what's well, a good distribution? Okay. And a couple of fellows, that's good. Hopefully I can help you guys out for you know, your next step of boards. So um, in any case, that's good. That's great. This is a nice distribution. So let's uh, go on to what complications are. Now complications can, can hit a whole wide array of things, right? It can be failure of the sling or whatever reconstructive procedure you're doing to do what, you, what your patient thought it was going to do or even what you thought it was supposed to do. Okay, so that can be a complication. An unexpected outcome, of course, can be a complication. A de novo problem that somehow is created by the procedure that you did can, can be considered a complication. And then, of course, complications. So we're going to go over a little bit of a review, and then we're going to go into the case-based discussion, okay? So um, why do slings fail? So starting with the sling not doing what you expected it to do or what the patient expected it to do, it could be a variety of very simple concepts, right? It's too loose, it's too tight, it's, uh, it, it's the wrong indication, or the patient has a significant uh, component of overactive bladder in a mixed picture, or you mistake overactive bladder for stress incontinence. 
uh, the sling is in the wrong place. It's either positioned wrong or it's eroding or it's extruding into some compartment or place that it's not supposed to be exposed or something else. Okay, so we'll go through these really briefly um, in this logical sort of fashion. So when they do fail though, what you need to do is approach it in a very logical way, right? It's not a trick. It's when you get this, if you get this question somebody asks you sometime in your future, it's not a trick. You just approach it very logically and you just kind of take it step by step and just address things very systematically, okay? You'll get a good history and physical, like always. You always want to get a very detailed history and physical. You want to characterize the nature of the failure. So what is it that's not right for the patient? Um, try to figure out what it is that they're experiencing. And then, of course, the, the detailed physical examination and then any, any adjunctive uh, tests that might be helpful, okay? But you have to have a question like when you're going to do your dynamics, there has to be a question. You don't want to just throw your dynamics at it, right? You want to do your dynamics to answer specific questions. You have to have those things in mind and your studies are going to be better. And then just logically address them. So let's go through that list. Too loose. If it's too loose, what do you do? Well, you could do a variety of things. You could do pelvic floor physical therapy, very reasonable depending upon the degree of stress urinary incontinence, persistent recurrence or recurrent stress urinary incontinence that they're experiencing, right? You could do conservative things like that. Pharmacotherapy, I put a question mark there and a no because there's no FDA approved medication for treatment of stress urinary incontinence. Now, in other countries, there are some medications that are used, but suffice it to say, there is nothing available in the United States. You can do urethral bulking injection, which is actually a really good option because you can do that in the office. The patient can drive themselves there and under local anesthetic, you can do an injection and that just kind of, you know, supplements things a little bit, right? So if, let's say your sling wasn't quite tight enough, but it's got given the urethral good support. It's just that you need a different mechanism to kind of supplement that. And sometimes urethral bulking injection to fine tune things is, is perfectly fine. If you do a redo mid urethral sling, again, you wouldn't want to do that in two weeks, but you know, if ultimately down the road, you decided you wanted to do a redo mid urethral sling, I think you should think about, and this could have been a question I could have asked you, but you wouldn't do a transobturator sling usually. You would think about doing a retropubic sling. Why? Because the retropubic sling has an angle that's more, you know, occlusive, I guess, or obstructive, rather than just an open, you know, transobturator sling, which we don't do a whole lot of those nowadays anyway. But if you're going to do a redo midurethral sling, you want to do a retropubic. Okay, and then autologous sling, which is still considered really the gold standard. I mean, that is the yardstick that we use um, to measure all the, the, the uh, surgical procedures that we have available to treat stress urinary incontinence. And because not everybody has pelvic floor or FPMRS in their, uh, in their residencies and in their training programs, I just wanted to do a real quick couple of slides to show you an autologous sling and tell you some of the general concepts about an autologous sling. Okay, so just a quick run through. So what you usually do, usually we take rectus fascia because you're going to make a little incision there anyway to pass your, your sling retropubically. But if the patient has bad tissue, they've had radiation in the area, they've had a lot of surgery, lower abdominal surgery, or any reason why you think that tissue is not going to be of good quality, um, or they've been you know, on steroids or something, the stronger tissue and another good alternative is fascia lata. 
And fasciolata is something that's actually quite simple to harvest. It's just that we all, none of us do a lot of fasciolata. So you want to have somebody there who can teach you how to do it. But suffice it to say that autologous tissue, of course, has the benefit of being autologous tissue over, uh, over synthetic, which nowadays has its own controversy uh, attached to it. So usually you take about a two centimeter by about 10 centimeter usually strip, okay, whether it's fasciolata or, or um, rectus fascia. And you want to kind of mark it out. The thing that my residents and fellows always see is that you start out with this kind of a marking and then it never fails. You, you, you harvest the thing and the hole becomes much bigger and the strip becomes much narrower, right? It sort of contracts. But if you just kind of, usually we will mark it out and then score it out like this so you don't lose your, lose your uh, orientation. And then you harvest it like this, okay? And then usually a lot of times we'll detach it here. Um, the next picture is exactly this where we actually put a spiral stitch to through this end. You would do that on this end also because those are the stitches you're gonna use to pass up and tie over the rectus fascia once, it's, once that defect is closed, okay? So the next picture shows exactly that. There is a strip here. We're putting a spiral stitch over here on this, uh, this end of the, of the fascia and then we'll detach it, okay? The original, uh, some of the original iterations of this left it attached on one side and just brought this around and brought this up, but we detach it completely, okay? We usually use ovicral. You can use any stitch you want. Um, ovicral lasts long enough to, to, to fit the bill. So we then close the fascia, of course, and then here's the sling, okay? Now the thing about an autologous sling is it tends to be more proximal at the bladder neck and proximal urethra, so it's a little bit more occlusive. It also works differently than a, a mid-urethral sling, which is just a backstop. This is actually occlusive, so when somebody's intra-abdominal pressure increases, it pulls the sling up. But because it's more occlusive and because it's located more proximally, at least in theory, that it, they tend to have a little higher incidence of uh, obstructive symptoms and urgency. Okay, so if they have urgency to begin with, you want to get that under control before you put an autologous sling in. And this is how loose it is. It's really very, very loose. It's not like um, a mid-urethral sling. You actually have space between the urethra and the sling. Okay, so that's just a run-through on that. I'm happy to talk about that in more detail if we need to. So too loose, too tight. What about too tight? Of course, then they can have obstructive voiding symptoms, right? All the stuff that you see in a man with prostatism, you'll have uh, you know, urgency, slow stream, hesitancy, a little intermittency, they feel like they can't empty completely. So those are things to think about. Now, this VCUG, if you look at it, looks pretty normal unless you have the history or somebody says, hey, you know, I have got obstructive symptoms now after a sling that I didn't have before, okay? And what could be helpful is some urodynamics. Now, I pulled this urodynamics yesterday when I was putting this talk together, and there's a problem with it in the context of this story. And I know we can't talk to each other, unfortunately, but I'd like you to look at it and everybody think you can chat to us if you want to um, about what is not quite right about this urodynamics tracing. And this is the voiding phase, um, so it is a pressure flow study. I'll let you think about it for just a second. Okay. And Ryan, they can't communicate with us, right? Is that right? No, not really. Okay, all right. So what's wrong with this in the context of the story I just told you is that this is a really high pressure for pressure flow for a woman. So this is probably one of my tracings. I pulled out looking for something that looked obstructive. And um, this is probably a man with a big prostate. You know, I mean, you don't get pressures like this usually. I mean, is it possible? Sure, but it's probably not the best representation. But that being said, 
think about those things. If it's too tight, they're going to get obstructive symptoms, and you can see um, you can see it on the pressure flow study. Okay, and what do you do in that situation? We're going to talk about some of these in the case discussions, but you know, you release the sling. Now, do you loosen it or do you cut it? And that depends on the timing, right? So if somebody presents to you really late, you can't loosen it anymore. If you don't get in there by, you know, about 10 days or so max, um, maybe you can get to 14 days, but really you want to do it within the first seven to 10 days if you're going to pull on it and try to loosen it. Beyond that, your tissue actually, the tissue actually grows into the interstices of the sling and starts to anchor it in place and you can't pull on it that easily. So you'd have to cut it if it's longer, um, if it's longer time. If you're loosening it when and how, we just talked about it. If you're cutting it, where do you cut it? I generally try to cut it on one side or the other rather than suburethrally. That's just my opinion, so that you don't risk injuring the urethra when you're trying to separate the um, sling from the tissues around it. So it's fine. If you loosen it on one side, it can still drop things down, or both sides if you need to, okay? Um, it all changes if it's autologous tissue. If it's an autologous sling, you can't cut it until about three months is the, is the dogma, is, the, is what we generally say. And the reason for that, if you think about it for a minute, is because there's no tissue ingrowth into the autologous fascia, right? So if you cut it too early, everything just falls down and you're a square one. So if you can, part of it is the art of medicine, right? You're, you're talking, you're, you're holding your patient's hand through all this because they're in distress if they have to catheterize and you tell them it's three months. But if they can last through it, um, and it's good, again, I always say this to our team here is that you want to coach and counsel the patients on all of these potential things prior to the surgery rather than afterwards. It's harder to, to deal with it afterwards if they hadn't heard it before, and it's good to just invest the time on the front end. So if you say, you know, for an autologous sling, it's very rare, you know, 1% maybe of that, that go into retention that's persistent, you know, like this, but then you might, you may have to catheterize up to three months time because it might loosen up by, by three months, you know, if you wait until three months, there's a chance it could loosen up and we don't want to cut it too early. Okay. Um, it's in the wrong place, right? Not wrong position, but wrong place. It's eroded into the urinary tract. It's eroded, it's extruded into the vaginal area. And there's some terminology that we use in FPMRS. It's, um, it, you know, erosion versus extrusion, but it's exposed on the vaginal side. It's exposed in the urinary tract. That's obviously a problem. On the vaginal side, we'll talk about it. Um, you don't have to go jump in and to do anything, but on in the urinary tract, you have to get it out. So that's a bigger deal. Thankfully, that's much less common, but it does happen. Wrong position, as I mentioned to you, that can happen too, right? So here's a urodynamics of a patient who actually, the sling, you can see the indentation. I've got a, I've got a better picture of it in the next slide, but this patient still has stress incontinence, intrinsic sphincter deficiency, in fact, if you still use that terminology, but the leak point pressure is 35 and the sling is proximal to the bladder neck. So um, it's not in the right place, okay? It's possible for that to happen, to put the sling in the wrong place. This is a patient who actually had such, um, such a wrong position that it occluded the ureter. I, I got these slides actually from Dr. Blavis. Thankfully, I've never seen this, but these are slides that I carry around in my, in my toolbox because they're so illustrative of things that can actually happen. And so even these simple procedures, you can't take two for granted. Okay, wrong indication. That's what you have to be really careful of. And I think urology residents and fellows are very careful about this, but we will often see patients who come in and their sling didn't work. And when you talk to them 
and asked them what their presenting symptoms were, they had you know overactive bladder or urgency or something else. So you know really that that history on the front end is very worth the investment. Um, so you could have overactive bladder. This is you know detrusor overactivity that maybe that was predate you know predated the actual sling. Um, it could be overflow incontinence, which is rare. That can happen. A fistula that's mistaken for ISD. You know, so this is the reason why in the stress incontinence guidelines, we always stress that you, you want to witness this, the stress incontinence before you operate, um, ideally. So that's the reason that that is in the um, urodynamics guidelines, sorry, stress incontinence guidelines. So let's move on now to a little interactive stuff. So the questions that I'm going to ask you, some of them are far from perfect. They're not exam grade questions or anything like that. They're really designed in this talk to have you think about things, okay, not to test you. Um, and some of them are, you know, you'll see. Some of them have several probably um, uh, correct answers. But again, this is really just to make you guys think instead of my just giving you information and lecturing to you as a talking head, okay? So hopefully you guys can think about it. Now, if you think about things again very logically, what could possibly go wrong in a simple procedure like a sling? What could be related to the surgery? It could be related to the function, and it could be related to the anatomy. So if you just think about it in very logical categories, it helps you sort of, you know, address things, right? So surgery related, it can be intra-op, it could be peri-op, or it could be post-op. Function related, it could be a persistent problem. So, you know, their stress incontinence persists, or it could be a de novo functional problem, you know, like overactive bladder or inability to empty completely, right? Um, it can be anatomy related. So all of a sudden they've got prolapse they didn't have before, or they have persistent prolapse, or they have some de novo anatomic issue. So just kind of put them in buckets like that, and it really makes it easier to tackle things. All right, so intraoperative, perioperative complications can be neurovascular or neurovascular or visceral injury, right? So you can hit the obviously the bladder, but you can add other things that are nearby. Um, you can puncture the vagina when you're passing your passers. You can, you know, hit bowel. Um, vascular things, thankfully, are not that common, but they do happen, and they've been reported with enough frequency that we have to own that that's a possibility. Neural injuries or neural irritation just by where the sling is sitting is also possible, and that's very bothersome to some patients. And of course, there's other structures. As I just showed you, the ureter can be in the pathway if you're really in the wrong neighborhood. So other structures can be involved. And, you know, a lot of these may come to you from somewhere else. So you have to consider all of these things because you weren't there intraoperatively to, to see what happened, right? Okay, so case number one. A 46-year-old female, she has stress incontinence, no prior surgeries, no prolapse, and she desires definitive treatment. Okay, so that's how she presents to you. What are the next steps? So this is a interactive question. We need that Jeopardy music or something. So I know if I'm supposed to do something here. Okay. 
Good. So let's look at this a little bit. Um, demonstrate stress incontinence. Yes, that's absolutely true. You want to get a urinalysis. That's absolutely true. And you want to get a PVR. That is the minimum workup. And that is what I should have asked it better. The minimum workup is, and the answer, so, so again, not a great question, but again, for the sake of discussion, the minimum workup for the index patient, which is who this gal is, is just demonstrate the stress incontinence, you know, good history and physical examination, demonstrate the stress incontinence, urinalysis and PVR. That's it, that's all you need to do for the, for the stress incontinence guidelines. So again, I didn't ask the question very well, but um, hopefully that sticks in your head. So now you know that she is the index patient, right? So a 46-year-old female who's got demonstrable stress incontinence, she has no prior surgeries and prolapse, her UA is clean, PVR is zero, her planned procedure is a mid-urethral sling, okay? Intraoperatively, you see this. All right, hopefully you don't see this. Hopefully, if you see, if, hopefully you see the passer before you put the actual mesh through there, but... Okay, so now I'm gonna switch, I'm gonna switch to another picture. It's not the kind of sling that we have here in the US, but it's gonna illustrate the, the, the issue that I wanna tell you guys about. So this is an interactive question. What kind of sling is she undergoing? What happened? Oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, good. I'm glad because I thought maybe this would be something that you guys would be like, what? Okay. So this is a little tricky because the orientation of this is kind of weird, um, but it's a retropubic sling. So you use all the information that you've got. Okay. What's the information that tells you that it's retropubic? This thing, which is what? The air bubble, right? So the position of where this sling is passing through is up next to the air bubble. In a retropubic sling, that's where you're gonna see the passage of something if it perforates the bladder, right? In a transoptrator, it's gonna be a little lower. It's gonna be more like the seven and five or eight and four kind of thing. Whereas for a retropubic, it's gonna be higher up, okay? So this is important for you guys to think about. And really what's the key here is a really good cystoscopy, right? You wanna fill the bladder completely. If you don't fill the bladder completely, the little wrinkles in the not completely distended or under distended bladder and mucosa can hide a little perforation, right? So it's, it's critical that you fill the bladder completely and that you use both the 70 and 30 or zero degree lens, okay? So the 70 degree lens is gonna help you look up at the 10 and 12, or 10 and two, and the um, zero and 30 are gonna help you look at, you know, closer down around the, the the five and seven o'clock position and in the urethra because you can hit the urethra also. I actually had one of my residents go right through the urethra and you would think, oh, that's impossible, but it's not. So, and as a urologist, you wouldn't have a leg to stand on. There was a point in time where some of these slings were being touted as like the transoptrators initially when they were being marketed, they were saying, you don't have to do a cysto with these. Of course you do. As, and as a urologist, if you don't do a cysto, you have no leg to stand on. So this is the key learning point here. Okay, fill the bladder completely, use both 30 and 70 degree lenses and know where the most probable place things might pass would be. 
Okay, next case. A 62-year-old female who's had two vaginal deliveries. She's got stress incontinence with a leak point pressure of 52. She has no prolapse. She has an uneventful retropubic sling. But post-op in the recovery room, she gets a little hypotensive. Okay, so here's my first really bad question, but I want you to be thinking about this because it should have been just a, it should have been a slide without a question. Um, but so there's several correct answers here, but we'll talk about it after we see what you guys pick and what you're thinking. Okay. Yeah. I mean, fluid resuscitation is probably the most important. I mean, fully to check her, um, uh, you know, to follow her output. Um, and then, of course, if the fluid resuscitation doesn't quite do it, then serial hematocrits and transfusion is, is very important. And if she's still not quite right, or if you're wondering what's happening, a CT is very reasonable. Okay. So just be thinking about how you would handle this patient, right? So what did we do? We did a CT. There's another question. What is her diagnosis at this point? This is a question here, Michelle. Oops, 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 oops. This is immediately post-op. Good. Yep. Yep. So this is deceiving, right? Because this is this is contrast in the bladder. So that's that's important to do, right? So we put contrast in the bladder. So this is her bladder squished up over here. This is a big hematoma, okay? So that can happen. Um, she actually, let's see if I said what I did here. Um, so yeah, this is deceiving, right? I mean, if you think this is the bladder, then it could be a failed Foley or it could be, you know, a urinoma, but this is actually bladder here with contrast in it. So good job. Um, okay, so what are the next steps now? Okay. Yep. That's good. That's good. Right. And so the reason for that, so actually this is exactly what we did. She did just fine. Okay. Um, the Foley is not an issue as, as we just discussed. IR drainage, embolization. I mean, if she kept bleeding, embolization would be reasonable. I wouldn't, 
um, there's no reason to do IRG and and I wouldn't do surgical exploration because as soon as you open it up, then you've released any sort of tamponade effect that you that you have, right? So you would embolize before you go to the OR. But so good, yeah. So conservative management is a little was a little unnerving, but she did fine. Okay, she did fine. And so just think about it that way. And 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 they do generally do fine. It's not that this happens that often, but it's not zero. So um, keep that in mind. Okay, postoperatively, I mean, this poor lady, this wasn't the end of it. She had significant de novo urgency. Think about why that would be, right? What are the next steps for her as far as the urgency at this point in time? She actually came to me from the Bay Area, San Francisco, and she was going home. And she was, of course, a physician's wife, you know, all of that stuff. No word of a lie, but. And again, not a great design question, more for you guys to think about what you would do. This is what I did. I prayed, crossed my fingers, prayed, called her a lot. Um, I don't know where that thing went, but um, oops. But suffice it to say, you know, you're not going to jump in and do third line therapies. That's for sure, right? You're going to do a lot of reassurance, a lot of phone calls. You really want to minimize her, you know, bladder irritants. Try to do some timed voiding. Why do you think she's got this urgency? It's it's this hematoma sitting on her bladder, right? So. Um, you know, it's a lot, it's a little bit of sweating and that sort of thing. You can add some pharmacotherapy just to let you know what happened with her. She did great. By three months, the hematoma was not completely resolved. We did another CT, but it was largely resolved and her urgency was really commensurate to the, the amount of hematoma she had. And ultimately she did fine, no stress incontinence, thank, thankfully. But I mean, you know, again, this is a lot of like really communicating with your patients. And I think that's probably the main message. Like don't panic just be in partnership with your patients when things like this happen, because they will if you do enough of anything, right? I remember when I was a resident, they said there's a 1% or 2% chance, no, 1% chance of um, pneumothorax when you do a subclavian line, right? I'm like, so I got to a 200 and I hadn't had any, and then 201 and 202, both of them, pneumos. So if you do enough of anything, the numbers are the numbers. So, um, you know, just understand that when you step into all of this, you, 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 you know, you own this and sometimes things will be humbling. All right, a 57-year-old pediatrician, no kidding, uneventful retropubic sling for stress incontinence. She was within my first five, by the way, uh, first 10, but she was very early in my experience. Thankfully, she wasn't the first one or I probably wouldn't have done one again, but um, the night of surgery, she had um, transient abdominal pain and these, we were still keeping them overnight at this time. So I went to go see her and it was very transient. Her exam was fine and it resolved spontaneously. We let her go home the next morning. Post-op day three, she returns to the clinic and she's got green discharge from one of her incisions. No pain or tenderness, interestingly. I didn't have any animation that I could say for green discharge. So I'm just giving you a green screen. This is what she presented with. What are the next steps? This is A, B, C, D, E. So this is an interactive one. It's supposed to be. 
Okay, well, the interactive thing isn't coming up, but, and or if there's anything else you might think about doing, but, so you're not gonna let her go. What are you thinking is happening here? She's, it's green, right? <laughs> it's green. Um, empiric antibiotics, you might do that, but you're not gonna do only that, right? Oh, thanks. All right, I'll let you answer these, this. Yep, good. Yep. CT scan showed no question. Very little, like a teeny bubble, but air under the diaphragm. So we went to the OR and uh, like I said, thankfully this wasn't my first one. Otherwise I probably wouldn't be <laughs> doing slings. Um, this, but it was early on and through and through the bowel. She had had a lot of bowel surgery and this is one of those patients who always sticks in my head. I mean, I've done I don't know how many now, many hundreds, if not thousands of slings now. And in this situation where somebody's had a lot of surgery in the lower abdominal area, it, I, it always, this case always goes through my head. Um, so this would be a perfect person to consider doing a transobturator for now, okay? Um, also, I mean, it's highly unusual for something like this to happen. She just had bowel that was stuck down there. And this, this actually brought up a very interesting discussion, the answer to which I don't know. And that is we put people in Trendelenburg when we do retropubic slings because we think that it's gonna make the bowel go cephalad, but I don't know if it, if, if it does. I mean, you know, it, I don't know how much it makes things, so you know, certainly if they've had a lot of, if they have a lot of scar tissue from previous surgeries, it's not gonna do that. So in any case, this was humbling. Thankfully, it's the only one I've had in 20 years, but it can happen. So just be aware of these things, okay? Next case, 62-year-old female with mild stress incontinence, multiple abdominal surgeries. She undergoes a transobturator sling for the reasons we just talked about. And post-op, she has left lower extremity pain and heaviness after a transobturator sling, right? What is the next step for her? So think about, and the reason why I'm asking you this is I want you to think about why she's, you know, why she's having this and what the usual course of things is. Okay. Yeah, so good. So reassurance and anti-inflammatories are the, are the, you know, reassurance first because it's just by the time 24 hours to 48, 24 to 48 hours goes by, most of the very few people who have this situation, it's resolved spontaneously. Okay, so just so you know that. Um, if it doesn't, you can let them go with anti-inflammatory medication and then have them come back in about six weeks. If it's intolerable, you would start physical therapy sooner. Um, but generally speaking, they do very well. Um, but those few, I've had like two in my whole 20 years who I've had to send to physical therapy that, you know, still had some, you know, subtle issues, but they thankfully did fine. So 
physical therapy is the next step if it's longer term. Um, loosening the sling is not going to do anything. Removing the sling if it's persistent would be something reasonable to consider, but quite extreme. It's certainly not the first thing you would do, and you wouldn't do it early on unless it's just intolerable for someone. Okay, so just realize that. Now, this brings me to another um, thing to think about. Um, okay, okay, the majority resolve in one to two days if it's persistent physical therapy. Okay, now this is just a little different, but since we're talking about pain and neurologic stuff, let's answer this one. Okay, good. That's great. Okay, so you just want to know all this is this is totally fair game. So that's great. You guys got it right. So basically, you know, different positions, especially when we use lithotomy, you know, hip flexion can stretch that sciatic nerve or the saphenous nerve and cause quadriceps weakness or pain in the calf. Stirrups, classic, that pressure, right? So you want to make sure you're padded and you don't have undue pressure because they can get foot drop. And then when you're doing sort of more abdominal surgery, if you trap things in your retractors, you can get, you know, pain and numbness in the groin area and the extremity, and then obturator nerve entrapment or irritation from doing a transobturator um, passage. And if the nerve is in the vicinity or there's a little bit of bleeding or something that irritates the nerve, they can have adduction problems, right? So this is totally fair game, something that you should probably know about. 43-year-old undergoes a sling and she's unable to avoid postoperatively. The immediate management, of course, you're going to think about somehow facilitating drainage, right? So either a Foley, if they're unable to or unwilling to learn CIC, CIC would be ideal if possible, because then, then as soon as they can start voiding completely, you know it and they can stop the CIC. An alpha blocker is fine. It's very theoretical. There's no harm, no foul. Um, if they can't void at all, though, again, you're going to be really wanting to think about when you're going to intervene. We've already talked about that. So what's the technique of intervention? You stick a urethral sound in there and pull on it. Do you go into the OR or some people do it in their office and make an incision and pull on the sling? Um, or do you go in there and cut the sling? Good. Okay. So the point of this, the reason why I put this question in here is because the, you don't want to put a sound in there and pull on it. Okay. Because what you're going to do is put a lot of pressure on the urethra, the, you know, the, the vaginal side of the urethra um, and trap it between the sling and the sound and then really put them potentially at higher risk for erosion, right? Because you're really giving that tissue a lot of pressure. So 
you don't want to put a sound in there. It has been suggested and reported, but we just wouldn't advise that. Um, loosening the sling if it's early on, again, within seven to 10 days, otherwise you have to cut it. And that's not unreasonable, but you don't have to cut it if you intervene early, okay? Let me see how we're doing. Oops, I'm trying to do it with my regular mouse. Let's see here. Um, all right. 48-year-old, uh, she undergoes a transoptrator sling. 10 months later, she presents with recurrent irritated avoiding symptoms, dysuria, and urgency. This is not really a question. What are you thinking about, right? So you're thinking about the potential for incomplete emptying. So you want to get a PVR. You want to see that she just, you know, does she have a, U, uh, does she have a UTI, so a UA. You want to make sure she's emptying okay. You may or may not have an index of suspicion that you've got a suture or something in the bladder or the urethra. So you want to potentially at least keep that in mind. I mean, 10 months later, I, pro I would do a cysto and definitely a pelvic exam, okay? So those are the things you're thinking about. How do you treat these recurrent UTIs? It depends on the reason why she's having them, right? It may have nothing to do with the sling at all. It may be just recurrent UTIs and somebody who's sort of perimenopausal. But you do want to make sure she's emptying completely. If there's any suggestion of obstruction, you want to relieve that if she's not emptying completely or she's got obstructive symptoms. Um, consider the classic things that we do for for UTIs, you know, the UTI guidelines just came out. You're going to want to treat it episodically with, you know, culture proven, and then consider things like, you know, increased fluid intake, cranberry supplementation, maybe D-mannose, um, local hormone replacement therapy, all of those things that make the bladder mucosa less sticky to the bacteria for those patients who are susceptible and or make the environment not so hospitable to the bacteria, right? So dilute the urine, sometimes changing the pH. You know, the vaginal estrogen helps um, maintain the sort of normal milieu of bacteria in the area that help us maintain that balance and keep infection from happening, okay? But of course, in somebody who's had, you know, sling surgery, you wanna make sure there's no foreign body or any stones in the bladder, anything like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, again, if none of the above, then you want to treat it like you would per the UTI guidelines, okay, if she's having recurrent infections. All right. Uh, this is courtesy of Dr. Roz, who actually saw this on an x-ray because she had stones on here. I also had a patient just like that who had mesh that went over the UO and under the trigone, under the contralateral, uh, you know, um, intramural tunnel. It was a nightmare. And she actually did okay too, but that was really... So, um, and she's a gal who said to me in an outside facility, she had this procedure performed. It was a prolapse repair with mesh, which we don't do anymore, of course. Um, and she post-op had retention and, you know, clot retention in the, in the recovery room. And they just left a catheter in until it cleared up. So not the right thing to do. But anyway, again, some things you get delivered on your doorstep and you have to start it from the very beginning and make sure that you go through things very carefully. Okay. Um, case seven, we're getting close to the end. Let's see, 1048. So 52-year-old woman, she has vaginal spotting. She has no stress urinary incontinence, um, no pain, uh, no dyspareunia, but her, her partner complains. Okay, so what are you thinking about? Probably thinking maybe some vaginal extrusion. You have to look very closely, like, like looking for the, the guy in the coffee beans here. I think I've shown this before to some of my residents, but do you guys see the guy with the coffee bean guy? There he is. Um, sometimes it's that hard to find. Sometimes it's very subtle, but if you have a high index of suspicion because they've got spotting or their partner feels like they're getting poked, 
um, or you know anything like that, then have a high index of suspicion for the potential for there to be some mesh extrusion. Hers was very obvious. Now, question for you really quick. What are the choices? There's two more questions, that's it, and then we're in the home stretch. For her, the question's not coming up. Oh, there we are. What happened to it? <laughs> All right, for her, yeah, excision, of course. I mean, you could observe, you could try vaginal estrogen with the exposure that she had, the vaginal estrogen, you know, it's there was some epithelialization underneath the mesh already. Um, it's probably not going to help. Observation's not reasonable, um, not unreasonable. It just depends on how bothered she is. But since her partner is bothered, excision is very reasonable, okay? Now, in this situation, I don't. I won't even wait for the questions. If no one complains, meaning no one in the relationship, partner doesn't complain, she doesn't complain. Same picture as what we just had. You know, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything, okay? Because there is no infection risk. They're fine, and you can just observe. Case eight. Um, this is just an interesting one. Last one. Sixty-five-year-old woman who had a bone anchored sling in two thousand. Okay, bone anchored sling. We used to anchor it to the underside of the pubic bone with these little drills. Um, she came in describing, I have OAB, no stress incontinence, and while I'm urinating, all of a sudden the stream just stops in the middle. And I did a cysto, this is more of just an interesting case. And she had this little suture in there with this thing that looked like, you know, it reminds me of that, um, of like Dr. Seuss, you know, those little trees that grow like a cotton tree or a, a lollipop. Anyway, and this thing was just right at the bladder neck and would just ball valve right into the bladder neck and stop the stream. So anyway, going back to you know complications, we just went through some complications. I just wanted you to think very systematically and logically. Is the reason why I tried to shake it up like that. Why do slings fail? There's a variety of different reasons. Again, if you just approach it systematically, it's pretty simple. It, you know, you determine why in a very logical, systematic way with a good history and physical, and be thinking about all these possibilities. Um, I think the main thing is that surgeries. Nowadays, are, you know, we, we tout them as being simple, but they're not risk-free. And I think that we all have to know the potential complications on the front end and make sure our patients are in line with us, you know, and they understand the complications and what we can accomplish with the surgeries that we do. So um, if a complication occurs, you just keep your calm um, and approach it very logically. I hope this isn't, of this in Holy Week, I thought this was fine because they're all doing it remotely. See, so I hope you're all stay safe and well and I appreciate your attention and hope that was helpful in some way. So I'm gonna do this. I guess I have to go to the next, this one, right? Am I supposed to go to this one? Um, so I hope that experiment worked. Don't bomb me too hard, but I'd like your feedback, please. <laughs> and then Ryan, I guess if there's any questions, happy to answer them. Thank you so much, Dr. Kabashi. That was awesome. And you know, talking about things that are very difficult to deal with um, postoperatively. Um, so we, there's a lot of different questions. Um, first of all, do you have any uh, tricks or tips for standardizing the way you tension your autologous slings? 
Ah, very good. Um, there is no, you know, if somebody could um, invent a, a tensiometer, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be um, done, you know, but um, there is no standard way. I put, what I usually do is I will put a, um, you know, like a Kelly clamp back there or a big right angle clamp. And the bottom line is for an autologous sling, there's gonna be space. Like you could put your pinky between the urethra and the sling. So it just has to be loose. It kind of, it almost hangs there, right? Because when the patient's legs come down, the tension goes up. So you don't want it to be right up against the urethra or they're, they're, it's gonna be too tight, all right? So make sure, like really put your pinky or some instrument of pretty good size in there and make sure that you, you can actually not only see through, but if you hold the sling, there's a space between the sling and the urethra. And so I'm sorry that there's not anything better than that. As you saw that other picture, which is sort of a famous picture, putting your hand like three fingers under there and making sure when you tie it, that you don't tighten it up too much. And, and the other key thing is that, you know, the second and third knot ties can tighten things down. So you won't really want to, you know, I'm always down at the bottom as the residents and fellows tie it because each one, if you cinch it down too much, will tighten it up without you even realizing it. So you have to be really gentle about laying those, those um, knots down. Yeah. Uh, so when cutting or loosening a mid-urethral sling is too tight, how do you know how much you've loosened it or if it's been loosened enough uh, yeah. and kind of where to cut it if you need to cut both sides or just one side? Yeah, excellent question. If they're in complete retention, you're gonna cut both sides. Um, in fact, you might even want to dissect up a little bit, but you will see it. If they're in complete retention, a lot of times you will see this thing just go boom. It'll just like spring open. So when you cut it, you know, again, if they're in total retention, I will often do both. I mean, I shouldn't say often. It ha thankfully, it hasn't happened that frequently. But when you go in there, you can see a little um, release. If it's just obstructive symptoms and they're incomplete bladder emptying, but they're urinating, you don't want to get too aggressive or you're going to end up back at square one. So, you know, then you could just cut on one side. Again, some people cut underneath the urethra and that's fine also, but you, but that, you know, you have to dissect it off of the underside of the urethra and that puts things, a, it's a little risky there. So cutting on both sides kind of accomplishes the same thing without risking injuring the urethra. Um, awesome. And then uh, with regards to the patient in the second case, the hematoma, what blood vessels are you worried about puncturing with the retropubic or transopterator sling? Yeah. And that, that was just, you know, retropubic, like, like the um, dorsal venous complex. I mean, I think is what we've got because it was very, you know, right behind the pubic bone. However, if somebody does a bottom up, you can get the iliac vessels. I mean, if you turn, you know, so the, the, the urology team tends to do top down and so it's really not as common to get these issues but your point of biggest or best control is the entry point right so if you're entering up top and then you can put your finger there and guide it under you're in much better shape than sticking it from the bottom at least in my thinking it's from the bottom and and then going up where you you don't have anything to to guide now that being said a lot of TBTs are done across the world and they're bottom up. And so you just have to make sure that when you pass those passers, that your passer is parallel with the longitudinal axis of the patient. If you swing it around, it doesn't take much to like deviate it right into an iliac vessel. And those are the tragic ones that have been reported when you, you know, if, if you just, if you twist it too much, it, it can, it, the, the, the effect on the tip is quite dramatic. So um, you can hit a lot of different vessels.
right. Um, do you ever ultrasound in the OR to look for overlying bowel prior to sling placement? Like mm -hmm. people do for uh, suprapubic cath catheters? Yeah, we don't. We don't. I mean, if there's somebody now who you're really concerned about, you can do that prior to going to the OR and then you just do a transobturator. It's a very good question. We don't generally do that. Um, but to keep that in mind, I think is critical. And you can evaluate that on the front end. And if it looks like there's just a ton of bowel there, you can just go transobturator and you stay out of the pubic, the pelvic, the pelvis altogether. Yeah. Um, and the lady who had the tragic bowel injury, um, yeah. what eventually happened with her? Did she get a transobturator sling or? I think, we, I think, yes, we did. We did a transobturator sling on her. So we took that out, as you saw. It was bowel with the whole sling. We just took the whole thing out. Um, yes, she got a transobturator. And so far as I know, I should probably call her up and see how she's doing it. This was, again, this was in my first 10. So it was, you know, in 1999. I hate to admit that but there we go. <laughs> um, and for people vaginal slings do you keep patients overnight do you send them home with narcotics uh, and then do you teach them preoperatively CIC in case they can't void great question great question um when I was in training we would teach everybody how to do CIC prior to a sling no matter what kind of sling that's what I learned in my training um, now that we know that the risk of retention requiring catheterization is so low, we don't do that because you're going to end up teaching 95% of patients who don't need to know how to do it, right? I mean, it's really rare. Um, it's not zero, though. Um, so if somebody, there are times where people are nervous about it, and then you can offer, you know, we can go ahead and teach you beforehand so that you don't have that piece of anxiety going into it, even though the risk is low. So that's the exception, but not as routine. As far as um, keeping them overnight, Rarely do I keep any any sling or any even pelvic floor reconstruction short of the robotic, you know, sacral copalpexies. All my patients tend to go home in the same day now. Now, the exception to that, I mean, you have to tailor to every patient, right? If a patient comes to us from Montana, we don't push them out, you know, or somebody comes from a long ways away. Um, the patients who tend to need to stay after an autologous sling for pain control are the young women because it's like getting a tummy tuck in somebody who doesn't need it, right? I mean, it's the young women tend to have so much more tone in the lower abdominal area that they have more pain, it seems to me. So those are the patients who usually we make that decision in the recovery room. We'll say, okay, we're gonna plan on sending you home, but if you're really you know, uncomfortable, we'll keep you overnight. And so that's, that's rare, but that happens. And then usually remarkably by the next day, they're a lot better. So I think part of it is maybe just the, the pull of the fascia and part of it is they've got so much more tone. So when you're harvesting and you know, underneath the rectus muscles, like contracting when the cat, when the bovies going by, I think that's like doing like major sit-ups or something, you know what I mean? So those are the gals who really, I see it quite starkly that it's the, the younger gals who have the, the harder time with analgesia. Uh, what is the role of alpha blockers and urinary retention in the elderly female population? <laughs> it is very theoretical, is what it is. We do use it um, off-label, obviously. That's not what alpha blockers are, you know, FDA approved for. But some patients get a benefit from it. Um, you know, it's it's going to be smooth muscle in theory. Um, but I think in theory, it's a reasonable thing to consider. So I I use it not infrequently, not in, not only in older, but in younger women also. Now in the older patient population, the same as in the older male population, you do wanna 
you know, really coach them on the fact, the counsel them on the potential for lightheadedness and dizziness, and then, you know, nasal congestion, that sort of thing is a secondary thing, but um, so that they, you know, potentially, you know, if they get some lightheadedness that they'll know that that's what it is. They can take it at night before they go to bed. And real quick, if you cut the sling early on in the post-op period, do you do it under general anesthetic? I do. I, I, I like to do that or, you know, a little sedation. I know people do it in the office. There's two concerns for me that the reason why I never did it that way is number one, infection. And number two is patient, patient comfort. I mean, you know, to do that in the office, I think is kind of um, uncomfortable, but you know, patients, whoops, I think patients, um, you know, you just, you're in partnership with them. I don't know why this is happening. Um, you're in partnership with them. So just, it's a matter of a good conversation with them so that they can make the decision together with you. And then I think the last question that we'll be able to do today, um, in the recent Gold Journal, there was basically a presentation um, where they managed a bowel injury conservatively. Would you ever consider a trial of empiric antibiotics or would you proceed with a definitive exploration of bowel resection? Wow, um, I haven't seen the manuscript, so I don't wanna, I don't know the circumstances. I think if you really know that there's a bowel injury, like the one that I had, there was no way we could have managed it. I think what happened to her is she, why, why was it transient? Is she had a little bit of like leak and a little bit of peritonitis and then it sealed around the sling. So I guess if you didn't know that it was happening, you might get away with it, but I wouldn't try to get away with it on purpose. I'm, I'm too conservative, I think, but if somebody did, good for you. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Gabashi. Appreciate your time. Um, there's several more questions that I know people want answered since we only got through about half of them. So, um, so, so we'll, send them to me. What happens we'll, with that? Yeah, we'll send them to you. Okay, perfect. Um, and uh, please, everybody, um, leave your evaluation so we can continue to improve. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kabashi. Thank you very much. Everybody stay safe. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.